0: Daybreak, and the jungle comes alive. Nocturnal predators are banished by the first pale light of dawn to hidden dens, and their selected prey are able to relax their guard, breathe easily again. Another set of hunters are abroad now, forest denizens who thrive on light instead of darkness, basking in the warmth and shunning shadows. For a man on watch, the hour of dawn is perilous in the extreme. Despite his best intentions, he experiences a creeping sluggishness, a deep involuntary letting down that has been built into his genes from prehistoric times. Sentries at their posts must be on guard against the siren song of sleep, or they may never wake again. Mark Stone was counting on the natural reactions of the sentries, rooting for the hours of tedium that made them careless, lax about their duties on patrol. He needed that small edge to guarantee himself the crucial element of surprise. Without it, he was looking at a death-trap there, beyond the trees. The small encampment might have been abandoned, judging from a first glance, but two full days of recon in the area had proven otherwise. There was a military presence here, albeit casually maintained, and there was something else. Something, someone, else, had brought Mark Stone across six thousand to penetrate the reeking jungle hell of Vietnam. Ten years and more after the ceasefire, after peace with honor, he was coming back to finish what was started in another time, another life. Mark Stone was picking up the pieces, trying desperately to salvage lives that somehow had been forgotten in the rush to disengage from Vietnam. Across the years, there had been more than ten thousand eyewitness sightings of Americans and other Westerners in hostile custody, and not all of those sightings could be passed off as mistakes or drunken ramblings. In the face of U.S. government inaction, someone had to shoulder the responsibility of seeking out the long-forgotten missing. Mark Stone had volunteered. It was the least he could do for men who had responded to their nation's call, and then been thrown away like so much dirty laundry, forgotten. Covered up. He would not rest while any one of them remained in hostile hands, not while he lived. They called Stone the MIA hunter. He returned periodically to Southeast Asia in search of American missing in action prisoners of war for the families of such men. Stone did not accept these rescue missions for money. He made no profit, whatever, from the danger. His fees covered expenses and personnel. The M.I.A. hunter's motivation was that Stone had once been a P.O.W. himself. He knew what it was like to starve in a bamboo cage under a scorching sun and the sadism of the guards. Stone's living expenses came from a career as a successful Los Angeles private investigator, but this had become more and more a sideline as the far more meaningful M.I.A. work took up more and more of his time. He was well connected in the international Soldier of Fortune community and had at his disposal a roster of twenty-seven men, a network of seasoned, battle-savvy mercs, like Hog Wiley, the raunchy East Texan, a light weapons and hand-to-hand combat expert, or Terence Laughlin, a melancholy ex-SAS commander, the tough-as-nails Britisher was the best demolitions expert for hire anywhere. Stone was a big man, outfitted in jungle camo fatigues webbed in full combat rig, He toted a C.A.R. 15 and kept low. Reports had placed a dozen M.I.A.s inside this little compound, guarded by a force of twice as many North Vietnamese regulars. The overkill in personnel was customary, typical of Asian operations. Officers who were not needed elsewhere, or who might have made themselves some enemies along the way, were garrisoned to watch the P.O.W.s, to keep them hidden until such time as they might be of use. The MIAs were pawns, without official recognition, and if some or all of them should die before their captors found a use for them, well, in the eyes of their own nation, they were dead already."